Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media and my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I let my children or family take over the business? And, um, you know, this is not a topic that people run into every day, but it is a topic that has a lot of depth to it. And most of us, if we're not in a family business, we probably know somebody that is, and it might be a business that's been in the family for one generation, might be in a a business that's been in the family for many generations. Um, And interestingly, on, on a side note, some of the, some of the businesses with the most longevity are insurance businesses, interestingly enough. And I wonder if the fact that they have this actuarial model somehow enables them to um, uh, to manage risk over the long term, maybe, but maybe than, than other firms. But, you know, it is, it is a fascinating topic. And I think given the way that our economy is shaping, um, capital gains tax changes notwithstanding, that family businesses are going to become an increasingly important asset. You know, we live in a time of of great uncertainty, and there's a lot of literature now coming out. I've seen it both in the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, that, you know, for the time being, the notion of this this risk-free rate of return of of 5% that most of us have grown up with counting on is really not in the cards. Um, you know, people who are millennials and Gen Zers <clears throat> may be fortunate to have a, a risk-free rate of return of 2 to 3%. Franklin, there are a lot of fact, there are a lot of factors going into that that I'm not going to discuss in this particular program. Um, but you know, a family asset is a family business is is potentially a tremendous asset for wealth building, for legacy building, for taking care of one's children or not. Um, you know, Warren Buffett's been very clear; he's not going to leave a whole lot of money to his children. Bill Gates is sort of the same way, but everybody approaches this differently. And you know, intergenerational businesses do sort of take on a life of their own. Uh, I have a few clients like that where I've helped them write their family uh, business charter or the family charter, which is sort of like the constitution. How are you going to govern these things? And, and you know, there there are businesses that are multi generational family businesses that are names that you may you you may not have realized. Um, Hikoman, the soy sauce maker in Japan is a business that traces back to a group of eight families that are still in ownership today back in the 17th century. Um, the Rothschilds date back to the 18th century, back in uh, B- Bavaria, um, something closer to home. Um, you know, the Fords are on their fourth generation. 
and the melons are in something like their sixth or seventh generation. So, you know, they are around and um, they may not be as visible, but, but, but they're around. So I hope you'll find this a very interesting topic, even if it doesn't necessarily apply to your particular situation, or maybe you'll decide you want to make it a situation. If you're, if you, if you're just starting out with your business, maybe this will inspire you to create an, an asset that can be valuable to your generate to future generations uh, to come. And joining us today are David Ray and Matt DeSico of Ubell, Brady, and Sutman. With over 40 years of corporate management experience, David has successfully held multiple positions within the C-suite prior to joining EBS in 2003. Today, David is responsible for the day-to-day business operations of EBS. As a member of the Wealth Management Group, David works closely with high net worth individuals and brings the ability to assist clients with the preservation and growth of a closely held family business. David also brings a unique talent through his study of behavioral assessment and talent optimization. Using behavioral analysis, David helps business owners and clients define and develop an ideal state definition for their personal business and financial future. Matt joined EBS in 2016 after practicing law in the private sector for over 15 years. Today, Matt applies his experience to serve high net worth individuals and business owner clients as a member of the wealth management group of EBS. Whether a client has a family member going through divorce, a probate question, or an issue burdening their business, Matt is a legal resource to provide direction. Utilizing a proactive approach, Matt helps clients prepare for the positive and negative life issues that may impact their portfolio. Matt is also responsible for managing the legal risk within EBS's private investments. Ubell Brady and Sutman was formed when three friends came together as business partners more than two and a half decades ago. From the very beginning, a high value has been placed on trust, friendships, caring for clients, long-term investment results, and a single value-oriented investment philosophy focused on absolute rather than relative returns. EBS's clients are business partners and often become friends. They strive to communicate accordingly, being as transparent as possible. For EBS, investing in you is about taking the time to learn what is important to you, those you care about, and how the firm's investment and wealth management processes might provide you peace of mind. David and Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. So um, I read a statistic that shows that, that indicates that something on the order of eight out of 10 family businesses have no succession plan whatsoever. Do you think that's an accurate statistic? And if so, why do you think that number is so high? At least it seems high to me. Yeah, Michael, I, I think you one of the challenges we've got with answering that question is uh, succession. If you say, do you have a succession plan? I think means a lot of different things to different people. And, and in our experience, we would view succession plan and having one in place as having a number of elements. It would include, for example, the management succession, the, the depth of your bench. It would include uh, estate and tax strategies. Uh, it, it, it would include um uh, how are you going to uh, work with family? Something you alluded to in your in your opening comments, kind of what is the philosophy of the family around the business and the role of active uh, shareholders as well as those that aren't involved in the business, and then then ultimately, what's the vision for for the company down the road, whether it be sold or transferred or whatever that might be. So it's a pretty all encompassing uh, definition in terms of the way we look at it. And, uh, and, and frankly, it's not something as a to-do item. Uh, we look at it as kind of an ongoing item that's key governing the business correctly. 
Yeah, and Mike, I might add to that and say when you uh, reference no succession plan, um, I, I think that that implies that they have no plan at all in place. I think that most business owners have some idea of what they want to do with the business someday, some conceptual idea. Um, now, that, that conceptual idea may very well change as they become educated about their options and consequences of the different uh, strategies they, they wish to employ. Uh, but I, I think that that uh, statistic is high. I, I think that most people do have some conceptual idea of what they want to do with the business. So I want to share an observation with you. <clears throat> you know, it seemed to me that back in back in the first decade of this uh, of, of of this century, I think there are a lot of predictions that somewhere around 2010, 2011, that a lot of family businesses were going to turn over that. Uh, people simply were going to have to sell their businesses. And I think investment bankers in particular were kind of licking their chops saying, oh boy, we're going to have the best years ever selling all of these family businesses. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily happened. I think that baby boomers are hanging in their businesses longer than a lot of people would have, would have predicted. Do you agree? Do you have a similar observation? And, and if so, what do you think is driving that? I would say that you're you're probably that that's probably correct. Um, we we were exposed in some previous presentations to a number of uh, over 15 million private businesses and about two thirds of those controlled by baby boomers, Michael. And I, and I think, uh, frankly, one of the things that we've seen with many of our business owner clients is, frankly, they'd like to be farther along than they are. However, in many cases. For you to take on some of these succession issues related, for example, to developing your management team and your bench strength, uh, it is the equivalent of adding a part-time job. And most of the business owners I know who are operating the business day-to-day, frankly, are working way more than 40 hours anyway. And so when you look at the possibility of adding on to a part-time job, that's just something that's not practical for them them to do both. Uh, I think that's one big issue. And I think the other one is that um, people really, in, people in some cases get get so much out of running the business and are so excited about it. That's one of those things that's easy to procrastinate until there's some kind of event where you really have to act. And we see that in, in many cases where you have fewer options. If that, in fact, because of the health situation or whatever it might be, uh, becomes a reality. Yeah, I may uh, speak more to really what's driving this. And, you know, one thing I would say is is medical advancements, right? We're, we're living longer. We're healthier. Um, valuations are, are high right now. Uh, so, it frankly, it, it limits the buyer pool. Uh, and, and then, you know, when things are good, when you're feeling good and, and pre-COVID, uh, the business is throwing off cash. Uh, valuations in the market. I think you referred to, uh, you know, a two to three percent, you know, risk-free rate of return. Uh, when you get a whole bunch of money for your business, now you have to figure out what you're going to do with that money, and and there's not a lot of good options. So when you're doing good and you're feeling good and your business is throwing off cash, uh, it tends to lead to procrastination. Uh, and then you can look at all the reasons why people procrastinate in the formulation uh, of a formal strategic plan and the implementation of a formal strategic plan. Um, and, and, and there's lots of reasons, right? Um, you know, one of those is tough decisions have to be made. Um, you're, you're making decisions about your baby. Uh, for some people, their, their lifetime 
uh, of work and achievement uh, that that they uh, almost view as uh, you know being a reflection of themselves, a piece of themselves. Uh, and, and you know, when you have family members involved in the business, it requires uh, tough decisions to be made with regard to those family members. Um, and then finally, there's there's finality. Uh, when you make that uh, decision, you uh, formulate that formal plan, you begin to implement that plan, and changes start to be made. Um, that that is a real uh, life changing moment for some people. Uh, so, Mike, uh, you know, one of the things that, that David and I work together on uh, is utilizing uh, what, uh, and in that succession blueprint, we're helping business owners proactively define uh, what a, same, a successful transition would look like uh, for them. And in doing that, you know, we'll we'll provide. Uh, insight into their own behavior and the consequences their behavior can have on planning the transition, as well as just identifying priorities, identifying the marketability of the business, what can make it more or less value uh, valuable, um, as well as providing some different ranges of valuations on a roughly right type of basis and helping them using one of our proprietary models uh, identify what that retirement is going to look like and what this uh, hypothetical pot of money is going to do for them uh, based upon their own anticipated needs. And, you know, sometimes just providing a lot of education and peace of mind uh, can help them get over that uh, procrastination stumbling block and start making decisions whereby they can transfer it to the next generation. So I think I'm going to want to come back to that succession blueprint. But before I do, you said something at the outset of that answer that I think is, uh, I'm going to make up a new word, just subtle smart. And because of that, I want to come back because I think it need, it's so important and it's easy to miss. And that is that when you sell a business, right, you suddenly become an investor, especially if most of your investable assets have been locked into the business, right? And, and I, think it, I think something that gets missed and I, and, and I advise my clients on too is when, when you sell your business, right, ostensibly you have this big pile of cash you now need to do something with or should do something with. And is it going to generate as high a return on a risk-adjusted basis as what you are already doing? <clears throat> and, and trying to map that puzzle is not as easy as it sounds. And, and, and I'll add this, and I'd love you to comment. You know, a market like what we have today, I think, is actually a double-edged sword. Because on the other hand, I'm, I'm sorry, on one hand, that may allow you to sell your business for an attractive valuation. But on the other hand, when you have a market that that might be at the top, and I'm not going to I'm not going to offer a hard or fast comment. You know, I'm not a I'm not a RIA and I'm licensed. Um, but but if you are at if you are at a high point in the market, right? What kind of returns are you going to get at that particular point in time? Right? It's just how high can these things go in the short term? And um, you know that that's that's a that's a subtle question that you have to think about, and and maybe that may lend to a decision to keep the business and the family be simply because of a, of a market timing issue. Not that I want to, every CFA in the world is just about to point a gun at my head. I'm not advocating market timing, but if you have a market environment where returns are hard to come by, I do think it's, I do think it's, um, uh, I do think it's, it's only prudent to look at that environment when you sell your business into it. I took much more time asking that question than I should have, but, but I'd love you to react to it. The, so it's, it's funny because Ron Yubel, one of our founding partners, uh, talks about this issue a lot with business owners and with us internally. 
And you're exactly right, Michael, because if I, and I'll use an example, um, there's a, I think I can use an example. If you had bought Cisco Systems, and let's say you really liked the company in 1999, and 20 years from then you plan to retire, um, you actually, when you liquidated that 20 years later, would have had a pretty substantial double-digit loss. And it's because Cisco sold at a very high price. And, and one of the things that generally is the case is private markets and valuations you get in sales and the privates tend to follow the public markets. And therefore, to your point, if, if uh, valuations are high on the, uh, uh, and you're getting a good number on a sale to a private business, it, it's very important that you go in with, uh, with both eyes wide open from a preservation of capital standpoint. Because the last thing in the world we want to have somebody do is to go through and to work their tail off and then all of a sudden reinvest and have and have losses that are significant. Um, so I, I think that's that's something as we work with clients, we really try to manage expectations when prices are, are very high in terms of that that reinvestment strategy. Yeah, and what I would say uh, in addition to that is is we work very hard to minimize the risk of a permanent loss of capital. So you liquidated your business for a good number. Uh, we're going to employ several different strategies uh, to, to try to minimize any risk of you throwing it into an investment now at a, a high number that, that may ultimately come down and may not recover by the time you're ready to uh, to use those assets. So that could be a whole other podcast on the different strategies we use, but, but we do employ those. So a concern I hear, and you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love you to expand upon it, but a concern I hear frequently in transferring a business within the family is the risk of creating family strife. And, and for good or ill, I make a lot of money on, on adjudicating in effect or refereeing those family strife kind of issues. Um, and I'm curious, is that a consideration that you see frequently? Is that a realistic fear? And if so, what are some tips you can provide to, to manage it or even assess if that family strife even is manageable? We, we do, to answer your question, see it a lot, and um, particularly in situations where you have some family members who are active in the business, may have a managerial role, but may have an employee role, whatever it might be, and then you have you also have other folks who, who live off the dividends, let's say, off the cash flow of the business, and, and particularly at times when, when the owners and operators of the business may be looking at long-term issues, and that may, for example... Uh, 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 behoove the business to, to defer dividends, for example, that's going to create some strife. But there's also personality-related issues that we see that create, that create strife. Um, there's extreme examples that we've seen where, where uh, a judge had to even intervene and, and for board meetings have representation for kind of a divided family here in a business not too far from us. So this is a huge issue, but I think the, the one lesson that we see and we think is really important is, is yes, there's going to be strife, but if you don't deal with that strife proactively, the strife down the road can be much more painful. And uh, so one of the things that we try to do is to kind of work with folks, give them behavioral insights on things that may help them uh, understand why someone may be looking at the same situation differently than they do and, and try to, in some cases, even encourage conversations and have kind of whiteboard sessions to really get to the bottom of these issues uh, so that there can be 
a continuity in terms of how these things are addressed. Yeah, and I think David and I could, could both spout off a, a bunch of examples, as Mike, I'm sure you could as well, of the various causes for family strife. Uh, there, there's lots of different things that, that can cause it, but, uh, you know, frankly, in terms of managing it, some of the more effective things that I've seen uh, have just been uh, where you have a, a strong family member, business owner member who's uh, willing to set expectations of the next generation early on. Uh, and then secondly, have the confidence and the courage to put the right person in the right seat. Uh, and that's not always the easiest thing to do. But, uh, you know, frankly, managing and promoting your kids as you would any other employee, uh, having defined job descriptions and duties, having performance reviews and those types of things, I think, can be helpful. Um, but but then also actually one unique thing that uh, uh, David and I have seen is a uh, family business, multi-generational, where uh, all of the kids in the next generation were required to complete college and work outside of the family business for a period of years uh, before they were even eligible to work in the family business. And by that point, some of the folks decided, yeah, I'm not that interested anymore. I found what I like over here. Uh, and for the ones that did come back, you know, they now have real-world perspective. They've had to work for somebody. They've had to answer to somebody that's not, you know, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whoever else uh, is there. Uh, you know, I can tell you, I think it's uh, exceptionally valuable and that uh, I, I have some, some investments uh, in businesses of my own and uh, I've fired my own son. Uh, and, you know, it's a tough thing to do, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. Um, and it, it certainly provides an education. Well, you know, you, you talk about a future podcast topic, firing your own son. That is, uh, that's about as real and raw as it gets. Um, my, my first business as an aside, I fired the guy who uh, who became my best man later at my wedding. So yeah, we we've got a whole topic opportunity there. Well, boy, well we'll we'll have you back. Um, so to me, and this is a this is an uneducated view, but to me, it seems like keeping the business seems like the almost kind of the natural thing to do, right? It seems at least on the surface. Uh, you don't have to go find a buyer, for example. You just, you know, you, at some point you let somebody take over the family business. And I, we've talked about the complexities in doing that, but at a very high level, that just sort of seems like the path of least resistance. In your experience, do you think that more business owners than not actually take that path? Or do, you, do more of them tend to gravitate towards some sort of external exit? The, the statistics would show that um, we've seen a couple independent studies on this, and I'll quickly reference one, that you take nine businesses, four tend to vanish before they get through a second generation, two are sold, three get to the second generation, but only one of those get to a third generation. So the statistics would suggest that that uh, it's, a, it's a tough road, and, and I think Matt kind of alluded to this previously, but but... I think the more professional the management approach is, uh, probably the greater chance that you have to pass the business through generations in an orderly manner and continue to grow the business in value. And you know, there's there we use a, we use a EOS as a as a governance management system at our company. Others, you know, have, there's a bunch of successful ones. But it but in our experience and in viewing some of these companies. The, the disciplines that they have in place, which you can pick up on pretty quick, just kind of spending time with, with managers or, or touring uh, facilities, they're kind of the key to that to that ability to, to keep things thriving. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I would add that, uh, you know, I think 
a lot of it depends on the type of business and then also what's important to the to the owner and to the family and you know is is this a business that started as a family business like a family restaurant or a, a family nursery or something like that and you know other people frankly they are just serial entrepreneurs right they can't wait to stand up the next idea and, and grow it sell it and amass generational wealth by by building and selling companies over the course of their career. So, I mean, I would say that it's a little bit fact-specific. So, you know, that, that that phenomenon you just brought you just brought up segues, I think, nicely into a question is that there's a phenomenon out there called shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And, and, and the, the notion there is that if, if wealth is built in one generation, usually around a family business, that it's, it's typically gone by the, by the third generation. Um, and, and all, that might almost argue, seem to argue against trying to keep the business in the family because statistically speaking, the subsequent generations just may not be equipped either emotionally, skill set, or otherwise to to take on that responsibility. Would you would you agree with that? I mean, it sounds like at least the, the statistics bear that out. If only one in nine of those companies ever make it to the third generation or less than that. Um, but you know, w- what do you think about that? Yeah, I, th- I think it goes back to Matt's point. I think it is kind of uh, facts and circumstances. I-, I could cite an example where the first company I was in made it very successfully to the third generation. Uh, there was a sale that the third generation key person stayed on, but frankly chose uh, of his own accord to leave because of, uh, frankly, because of some differences of opinion and what he wasn't used to reporting to somebody. Uh, I think that's a key part of it. But it depends probably, Michael, more than anything else about how valuable that business is. Because if you've got a really valuable business that is being run effectively by the family, then it's easy to keep going. But if you can start to see the the wheels slow down, um, the other family members who are owners, and that there's just not the level of professional management that needs to kind of take the next generation, if you don't do something like uh, trying to sell, for example, or at least take some money out, then all you're doing is, is seeing that, that golden goose kind of erode. Yeah, and I'll, I'll really be interested to see how that statistic may change with the advent of the technological advances that we have uh, of late, because I can think of several examples where uh, there is a multi-generational family business that everybody has done very well. And then you have the younger generation come in and utilize this thing called the Internet, and they explode it. Um, and, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you see uh, a lot more of the younger generations coming in and taking a good, strong family business and and, and scaling it uh, through technology. That that is, that is a fascinating and a very compelling statement. So, and I hadn't given any thought to that, but, but I mean, it makes sense to me. If if you're in a te- if you're just sort of if you're so it's also hard to put this into words. The the fact of the matter is that we're we're all surrounded by technology, right? And many of us maybe more than we want to. And and it it's not like growing up around a car company or a candy company where you don't just build cars or make candy over the course of your normal life but you certainly interact with technology over the course of your normal life. Right. And, and there, that, that could give, that could give, provide sort of an environment for companies in that industry, at least, or families whose companies are in that industry to sort of have a head start in terms of the mentality about technology and how it changes and 
don't get too comfortable in some of the other rules that that make technology businesses different. And I, I think to Matt's point, if you you look at some of these companies that have hadn't in the past, but have basically been forced into to embracing e-commerce, and uh, and, and they. If they've got the right firepower behind them, they, in some cases, are experiencing very explosive growth on that segment of their business. So, um, you know, not everybody is built to run a business necessarily. Um, have you run encountered scenarios in which a a business maybe wanted an owner really wanted to pass their business on to children or at least a family member? Um, but maybe they really, you know, they, to your mind, they weren't really qualified or maybe the children themselves said, I don't want to do this. I'll run this into the ground, just sell it. Um, what's your advice in those circumstances? Do you go, do you just sort of then ride that out or do you try to be proactive and trying to get family members interested and skilled to run the business? What, what's the, what in your mind is best practices in that kind of scenario? Well, I think on, on this behavioral side that you that you touched on, um, that's something that, that we're fascinated by and have learned a lot from. And um, I learned a lot from a guy named Michael Wool, who we still use, frankly, to talk to some of our business owner clients about this very issue, Michael. And 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 I will tell you that often without someone knowing it, they may take that next generation and kind of force them into uh, a role that frankly does not give them satisfaction. They may have the competence to do it, uh, but frankly, over time, they don't get much satisfaction out of it. And that can be, a, that can be something that leads to you know, an erosion of value of the business, not to speak of uh, you might be contributing to that, that child not having as happy a life as they deserve and should have. Um, and, and we've seen that, for example, if you got a really extroverted uh, individual who ran the business was great at creating relationships and drove sales through that relationship building. And all of a sudden, you've got somebody that comes along that's that's much more operational oriented, and you try to put them in that role. Uh, we've seen that kind of scenario, and it's important to kind of recognize that that not just is the competence there and the desire, but is there a fit for, from the standpoint of of, of a behavioral match on, on success for that type of job. Yeah, and that's part of that succession blueprint and some of the tools that we can offer uh, to assess both the, you know, the or, or for multiple factors, uh, such as the aptitude, the competence, uh, desire, and interest. Uh, and I mean, there's there's more uh, to getting to making. There's more to the decision of finding the right person for the right seat than than just who uh, you were born to, right? So I mean, if if you're really looking for the overall right person to move the business forward. Uh, sometimes uh, that's going to result in decisions that, you know, might not be the best for the family, but it's best for the business versus uh, the, the opposite. And, and Mike, I'll just say one other thing that I, I think maybe one of the, the trickiest combinations is that you've got a child who really desires to be a part of the business and take it over. But but frankly, that just the, the, the aptitude or the ability to, to embrace what's necessary just isn't there. And that that can create for some significant uh, family challenges that are very apparent to the employees. Uh, probably the employee knows better than anybody if that kid's capable of running the business. Uh, 
Yeah, and that child may have a role. It may not be in the role of leader. Right, exactly. And at least not right away, right? I mean, the beauty of the family business, I do think the time horizons are expanded. And I think, in fact, there's data out there that suggests that uh, family businesses tend to outperform their non-family counterparts. And I think one of the things that drives that is the fact that that they they tend not to make snap decisions. They tend to really kind of take their time. And frankly, they have a longer investment time horizon too, because they're they're not they're generally not wired to a quarterly to quarter, quarter to quarter basis. So in that scenario that you described with a child that, that, you know, would like to take over the business in a family scenario, I imagine that means the conversation isn't necessarily no, but just simply not yet. Whereas in a more, I'll call it professionalized environment for lack of a better term, it's more like up and out, right? You're not going to give me the opportunity that I'm out. Yeah. Yes. So um, I want to switch gears here. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about valuation because that's near and dear to my heart. And, and you know, I think one of the trickiest things about about a family business, and one of the one of the um, one of the drivers of the decision, of course, is what is the value of the business, and um, you know what is its value to a third party buyer versus the value to the business, and. Something I hear, an observation I hear frequently, particularly from investment bankers and private equity folks, is, you know, I couldn't sell that business, or I couldn't, I couldn't buy that business because the seller was simply, uh, was was simply, you know, irrational. And um, I kind of wonder about that because I wonder if, if maybe they're irrational because because the seller isn't a private equity group, they're not an investment banker. But I kind of wonder if sometimes the the business can just simply be worth more to the current owner than it is to anybody else, and that that doesn't make it anybody's fault. That's just that that's just kind of how the the numbers kind of work and how the values kind of work. What do you think about that? Am I am I crazy? Do I have three heads for saying that, or do you think there's a grain of truth in in that notion? No, I th- I think that that uh, I would tend to agree with you. Um, and particularly, if you don't just measure it in an economic sense, purely an economic sense, there's a lot of things we've seen that uh, that are run through the business that enhance the quality of life that by themselves can make the business more valuable to that owner. Um, that, that, that is a significant issue that we see uh, that can really enhance lifestyle that, that, that you would lose if you sold the business. Um, so I, I, I think you're, you're exactly right on that one. Uh, in fact, Matt and Matt and I were talking about this in preparation and I was telling him about all the folks I've sat down with that have never sold their business. I've only seen one that really had some internal resources that had their arms around what the business was really worth to a sophisticated uh, buyer. And so there really is two different notions about what a business is worth. And I, and I think it's really hard to keep it purely economic uh, because of legacy issues and, and lifestyle and other things that, that that business owner enjoys along with the economics. Yeah. And I, you know, when, when we typically come across situations like that, uh, oftentimes it has been brought about by uh, locker room talk or golf course talk or cocktail party talk where 
you know, they hear so-and-so got a certain uh, EBITDA multiple for their business or, you know, Sally's machine shop sold for, you know, whatever down the street. And so, uh, therefore, my business must be worth at least that. Um, and, and those situations really require education, uh, Mike, and that's where uh, this business marketability element of that succession blueprint comes in, where, you know, we, we look at the different factors that impact uh, multiples and valuations, such as the type of the business, the health of the business. Uh, you know, they have a ton of revenue, but it's concentrated in one or two customers, or they don't have recurring revenue. Every single dollar is a unique customer in a single transaction. They don't have a moat. They don't have any real competitive advantage. They don't have a stable management team. I mean, you can think of all the, the different reasons that impact valuation and, and sometimes helping them just understand what is impacting the valuation. But more importantly, here are some steps we can take on a going forward basis to improve uh, valuation and improve marketability. And here's a due diligence checklist. And this is what your prospective buyer is going to be asking of you. So rather than try to do all this in, you know, 30 days when you get the, the request for information, why don't we change some policies and procedures on a going forward basis to start compiling that data? And, and then you're ready to go. Uh, you look like a very organized, well-run machine uh, when you're ready to sell. And, and that also uh, improves valuation. Yeah, and Michael, uh, related to that, um, one of the tools we've used with business owners that we've worked with is to basically go through a quick assessment based on eight factors that we think drive business value um, through the eyes of sophisticated buyers and, and try to get them to, to critically and independently think about where they are on those eight factors. And then we often take some of that information and use this proprietary model we've developed for business owners that simulates liquidation at different valuations uh, and then ha ha your ability to kind of sustain a lifestyle off that. But it's, it, it really is. It, things like culture um, are very important in, in, for example, assessing value, uh, depending on the buyer, of course, but, but things like that. Obviously, Matt, Matt alluded to this, but if you've got a subscription type business where the cash flows are really predictable, you're, you've already got a, a foot up on a lot of folks. So, you know, when we think about transferring a business, the word that comes to mind is selling the business. But um, it, it occurs to me that there's more than one way to kind of skin that cat, right? You don't necessarily have to, or do you, are there other ways to effectuate a transfer of a business to family members other than simply selling it to them? And, and if so, what are the most common ones that you see? Yeah, and, and there are several estate planning type tools that can be uh, implemented. And, and right now, uh, frankly, you're seeing uh, somewhat of a push uh, in this area because of the uh, current estate tax and uh, state gift tax exemption. Uh, for 2021, it's $11.7 million per person, a 23.4 for a husband and wife. Uh, you know, you can take advantage of that. Now, that all is expected to sunset with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act uh, on December 31 of 2025, and there's several different plans uh, that are out there right now. Uh, the Biden plan, uh, you know, I expect it'll, it'll probably be somewhere of a, somewhat of a reversion back to 2009 rates of uh, $3.5 million uh, for the estate tax, maybe a million for the, uh, the gift tax. But, you know, so there are estate planning tools that you can use, and there are several. Uh, most of which, uh, you know, I would recommend you, you talk to your legal advisor uh, or to Brady Ware your or your tax advisor. 
Um, but things like the grantor retained annuity trusts and the grantor retained uni trusts, the grats and the gruts, uh, both allow you to uh, create an irrevocable trust and uh, put those business assets uh, in there for a defined period of time. Uh, and, and transfer to another generation. Uh, intentionally defective grantor trusts where uh, the grantor business owners pay uh, taxes uh, to allow the trust access uh, assets to appreciate. Um, so, so there's several different uh, uh, estate planning tools that can be used that could be another topic uh, in and of itself. Uh, but another <clears throat> thing that I've seen uh, used quite frequently is uh, creating and gifting non-voting shares of, of stock, uh, voting and non-voting shares. And, you know, that's also sometimes a way to manage those family dynamics that come up uh, where you can have, uh, you know, one uh, family member of the next generation that's really been active in the business, but you have several family members that work in the business and take income from the business and rely upon it. And so you can create uh, family uh, voting and non-voting shares uh, or, or membership units. Um, and uh, the benefit of, of that when you're transferring it from the uh, parent owner down to the kids is the parent owner can retain the voting shares. Uh, the kids can get the non-voting shares and then uh, the gift can be discounted for lack of marketability, lack of control discounts, other things uh, to try to get those uh, under those as, as gift exemptions should they decline. And uh, Michael, I, the one thing I'd add to that is that uh, one of the challenges we're seeing in this environment is with some of the multiples that are be, being paid by private equity with the amount of money they have sitting on the sidelines, that if there's a material number of shares that need to be transferred with a single owner, um, so that, that owner is probably going to have to be somewhat altruistic in order to be able to transfer rather than to sell outright to somebody. And so that that's kind of created a a challenge for some businesses in this in this uh, high valuation environment. Um, the other thing we've seen, you, you have to have a certain size for this to make sense because there's a lot of the administrative costs associated with it. But we're seeing more ESOP transactions, uh, frankly, with some of the folks that we deal with and know a couple of them really well that are in the, in the throes of an ESOP transaction. Um, that, that's another alternative in this area. Yeah, and I, you know, it would not surprise me if, uh, you know, right right now the maximum capital gains rate is is 20% with the uh, uh, additional 3.8% on top of that for a you know, combined total of 23.8%. You know, some of the proposals that I've seen coming out yesterday, Bloomberg reported that it was going to be uh, 39%, uh, 39.6% under Biden's plan as the top of capital gains rate. Uh, with that additional 3.8%, CNBC reported today, it's likely going to be less than that, but nobody really knows. But, you know, if that doubles, I think you're going to see more and more folks that are, you know, looking to avoid uh, any way they can uh, that capital gains rate, which may cause them to want to seek an alternative other than to uh, sell it in a third-party transaction. Um, we're talking to David Ray and Matt DeSico of Ubel, Brady, and Sutman. And the topic is, should I let my children or family take over the business? Um, you know, working with your clients and just talking to them, I'm, I'm curious, is there any kind of consensus or you know, common sentiment around giving their children a leg up in, in life? You know, Many of these businesses were, were probably created in that generation. They're self-made high net worth individuals as opposed to having inherited it. Do you, do you find that it troubles them at all to 
to turn something over a big head start to their children? Or maybe do they, do they tend to find that gratifying that that's, they consider that an accomplishment of their lives? Where, where do most of your clients do you think fall on that spectrum? Michael, one of the, the, it's a pretty simple tool we use is what we call an ownership issues assessment. And one of the things on there, it asks questions like basic questions like, you know, how important is it to you to maintain the culture and whether you transfer the business or sell the business. And, um, you know, so it gives you insights into how important legacy is to them. And, and I believe by and large, other than maybe the, the exception where somebody's just trying to maximize money, they're, they're just a person who just wants to make money. And, and uh, but I think most folks, those, those soft issues, like you're talking about are, are important to them. They've worked hard. Maybe they've inherited this business from, from their mother or father, and they've worked hard to try to maintain that business's reputation and grow its value. And they want to see it pass to the next generation. And that legacy is important to them. And so in, in, in those cases, um, I think they are trying to do everything possible to, A, create interest from that child, and, and then, B, to prepare them. And Matt alluded to some things earlier uh, where, where they may go out and work another company, get some training through that, and then come back in more prepared. But, yes, we see that pretty, pretty regularly. Yeah, and I think some people would say that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves rule you, you talked about earlier. Uh, is caused by, uh, as generations turn, uh, they lose the hunger, the ambition, the drive, right? They've, they've grown up privileged and wealthy, and how do you continue to stoke that fire uh, into the next generation? So some would say giving them too much of a head start in life is actually a bad thing. Um, you know, others others feel differently, but uh, yeah, I mean, that that is a problem, right, of, of balancing that approach to make sure that, that the kids still have drive and ambition and, and want to move on to the, the next level. Um, we only have time for a couple more questions, um, but but before we do wrap up, one question I did want to make sure that I ask you is um, how important is legacy to your clients? And, and you know, how important is it to them that what they built simply survives beyond their own lifetimes. And, and maybe, maybe you can even touch upon whether or not, you know, you find your clients, how frequently your clients want to want to have their legacy live on maybe through charitable contributions, foundations, things of that nature. But, but, but starting with focusing on the business, you know, how, how important it is, is it to your clients that they just simply want to, want to make sure that whatever they built doesn't go away like a couple of years after they step back, even financially taking out the financial consideration, they just don't want to, they just don't want to see their, their, what they built over decades turn into a, you know, a pile of sand. Yeah, and I think um, I'll use an example. When you, when you go back to like Oh nine, Oh 10, right after you know, the great recession trying to come out of that, there were some people who going into that, the legacy was really important, but they became, they became so beat down by what they had to go through and how the business suffered. And I believe this is the case in the COVID environment with certain businesses where, where some of those have really gotten beaten up. And so I think, I think Michael, in those situations, um, you've got people who all of a sudden kind of threw that legacy to the side of the road, that legacy issue to the side of the road. However, I think by and large, it, it, there is there is great pride and there is a part of their self-image that Matt touched on earlier 
that is the business. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons that slows down this process of getting into succession planning, because there's such an attachment between their self-worth and the image of the business that they have troubles, uh, the business owner has troubles separating themselves from that. And uh, so I, I, I would say based upon just that issue alone, that that legacy issue is, is very important if you survey the majority of the people that we that we deal with. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, to, to add on to that, I would say that I see this issue of legacy being more important to those folks that founded the business, um, you know, the ones that, that uh, grew the business from the start. And, and legacy is not just uh, tied to themselves or their family or, or the business itself. A lot of times, legacy includes those relationships with employees, with customers, with vendors, uh, a number of different folks that in, in many regards grew up uh, with that business owner and with the business uh, and wanted to make, make, make sure that the, uh, the business vision and relationships continue on into perpetuity it becomes very important. Jonah, this has been a very um, insightful conversation. I think our, our audience is going to get a lot out of this. We didn't get to cover everything that I think we could have covered today, probably even a fraction of it. But if people want to follow up, they have questions about this issue of um, of, uh, of transferring a business to family members, whether it's a next generation or just simply within the same one. Um, can they contact you to, to discuss it? And if so, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, we, we would welcome that. Uh, David and I would. And uh, either the best way to reach us through our, our 800 number is 800 391 one two two three, uh, or you can go to our uh, website uh, by googling Yubel Brady and Sutman uh, Investment Wealth Management, uh, or going to uh, ebs-asset.com. We would love to talk to you. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank David Ray and Matt Tasico uh, of Yubel uh, Brady and Sutman so much for joining us and sharing their expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.